Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome everybody and um, we have in the studio with me today Panel Beater and um, I have our, one of our wonderful guests, uh, Jackie, Coyle, Jackie Coyle, and we have online Dr. Moto, Dr. Patient, and soon to be our second guest, Dr. Chris French. So here we are. And Dr. Moto, welcome and good morning. Where are you this morning? You look like you're kind of in work mode apart from the beanie. Uh, yes, thank you very much, um, um, CyberSue. Um, so, look, I'm at, um, at work on St Kilda Road, but um, it is uh, quite cold because the air conditioning is not on, so I'm trying to keep myself warm. <laughs> so it's, so, and it's very foggy out the window, I see, as well. It is indeed. It was um, interesting um, riding in this morning, um, true to form, motoing everywhere. Um, visibility was not great, but um, look, actually, you do get to see, for, for those um, who might be curious, um, you do get to, you still get better visibility um, when it's really foggy on a motorcycle than um, a car, but nonetheless, you know, um, you just got to judge your speed accordingly and drive slash ride safely. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, Moto, the good news is we've got another motorbiker in the studio with us today, um, Jackie Coyle. Yeah. What do you ride? Or did you used to ride? What did you used to ride? I used to ride little screamers like two strokes, um, Yamahas and Kawasaki's. In those days, there wasn't anything that was sort of uh, my my sort of weight to sort of kick start and throw around corners. <laughs> <laughs> but they fun. Yeah, no, it was lots of fun. I used to love to scrape the pegs, especially around like Alexander Avenue, etc. Excellent, and. Oh. And Dr. I've missed. I think I've missed my opportunity with a lot of the um, with the two-stroke machines, and um, particularly like those um, little two-stroke Vespers. They were quintessential Vespers that used to, you know, roam around Europe and roam around Rome, very much like um, you know how it was depicted in Roman the movie Roman Holiday. But yeah, yeah. they're not so great for the environment. So it was probably a good idea that they got canned. Yeah, and the um, short wheelbase made it a little bit tricky if you hit a bit of gravel too. But lots of fun. And as we were just saying before we came on here with um, Dr. Patient, who's still, you know, he was on a, on a on two wheels, on a different type of two wheels, and he's still convalescing, and we're trying to get him on a motorbike. But Dr. Patient, how are you this morning? Good morning. Oh, look, it's it's almost over. I'm, I'm almost back in action, but uh, <laughs> you can still see the pillow behind my head, but it's been a, it's been a long, uh, long few months. Yeah. But uh, yeah, mine was definitely not a, not a motorcycle. It was just a regular old, uh, regular old push bicycle, but uh, um, I, I'm, I'm better. I'm moving around with one crutch now and, uh, and uh, got the moon boot on still. So hopefully that won't be too much longer. March twenty eighth until now, and what a what what a yeah. what a you're a true doctor patient, doctor patient. <laughs> exactly, there you go. Yeah. Justified in it. <laughs> and so 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 panel beater, well, you're all bells and whistles. Bells and whistles, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, certainly compared to doctor patient, who's being very patient. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so let's 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 go. Let's get over to a bit of news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, 
head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Dr. Moto, I think you've got some news for us. Yes, I'll, I'll kick, um, kick off the uh, news segment this morning. Um, so uh, I was um, fortunate enough to have been invited to speak at a couple of conferences in the USA and um, in Europe, and I just got back a month ago. And um, the, the, the link here with um, the Netherlands and Amsterdam, I'll make it fairly brief, but on my um, return leg, I got stranded in Amsterdam because I unfortunately um, contracted um, La Vida Covida, and um, had to um, have an unexpected um, one-week uh, layover in um, Amsterdam um, um, until I could um, be um, uncontagious enough to fly. And um, the, the news item I have to present today that with that very loose link to the Netherlands um, is um, there was a study that was published in um, Lancet Psychiatry very recently um, by um, a Dutch centre um, where they um, looked at about um, 250 patients in um, acute psychiatric crisis and they randomised them. So they randomly allocated them to either receive intensive home care or treatment as usual, which was most of the time going into hospital for a short stay. Now, why this is interesting is that, um, you know, of course, we know that from the 80s, 90s with the deinstitutionalization movement, um, um, uh, consumers of mental health services were, um, uh, you know, were taken out of hospitals and we were trying to minimize the frequency at which people were being admitted to hospitals. Um, but um, one of the drawbacks of that in uh, what's been identified more recently is that there probably aren't enough um, hospital beds, psychiatric hospital beds um, for the population size that we have. And that was one of the recommendations from Victoria's Royal Commission into Mental Health Services. So this was a very interesting study because they looked at rates of serious adverse events. They looked at patient satisfaction, family satisfaction um, in home-based care versus um, hospitalized care. And uh, importantly, and probably the key finding was that there was no difference in um, adverse events or, you know, bad things that happened um, um, in either group. So um, it was comparable in that sense. Um, and it gives us confidence that more intensive home-based care with sort of collaborative treatment plans devised between mental health professionals and the consumers and their family supports is an effective strategy to go, um, to, to go with even when people are in a very acute um, and um, um, critical um, mental state. Um, with respect to the um, family satisfaction, they didn't quite get enough um, data to give any convincing um, or um, um, robust findings, um, but it's a, certainly some place, uh, you know, something to um, keep an eye on. But I think it's very promising that we're moving away from hospital-based care, which of course can be quite distressing and um, upsetting for many people as well. For a lot of people, it works very, very well. Um, and it does also um, minimise the stress and strain and burden placed on families and partners and children within the household, of course. Um, but it doesn't work for everybody. And it's good to see that home-based care with intensive outreach support service is actually effective. Oh, that's such an interesting story. And I think it's not only for mental health, isn't it, but for all health. The less that people have to be in a hospital, in an institution, and the more they can be at home, it's been well and truly proven to help uh, with recovery and the whole process. I mean, look at doctor-patient. Um, 20, 30, 40 years ago, he might have been in a hospital for a lot longer than he is now. Um, 
And I guess one of the things you raise is that support for the people around because it's all well and good, but if people are having to work or have got other commitments, it must be a really difficult juggling act when they're caring for someone at home as well. But, no, good story. And, um, Dr Patient, I think you've got um, an update for us as well. Yeah, I have a very brief article of something that's very close to my, um, well, not so much so close to my heart, more so close to my head. Uh, scientists in, uh, in at Santa Casa de Sao Paulo Medical School have found that a lack of oxygen during the period anticipating childbirth, childbirth can be a cause of schizophrenia. And they've recently discovered how uh, hypoxia effectively um, is affecting astrocytes and that uh, the study paved the way for the future development of therapies to halt the process leading to mitochondria dysfunction and preventing damage to the fetal brain. So this was published in scientific reports by uh, Tatiana Lozado-Rosenstock, and um, they were able to find uh, find some interesting links there. It was uh, an experiment with uh, rat astrocytes, and the research uh, showed that the hypoxia affects the functioning of the mitochondria uh, or the energy-producing organelles in the cells. So compared with the normal ones, they were found to have lower levels of calcium in the cytosol, the water-based solution, uh, in which the organelles, proteins, and other structures float in the space between the membrane and the nucleus. So that was just a very brief uh, update that I found that I thought was very interesting, that um, the lack of oxygen in anticipating childbirth can be another cause of schizophrenia. And it's, a, it's such an endless uh, place of research, isn't it? And luckily enough, we do have a very clever brain researcher on our panel today, um, Dr Chris French, who's joined in with us, who I'm sure he might have something to add to that, because it's exactly what he studies is the way that the brain works. So, yeah, yeah welcome, 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 Chris. Thanks very much for having me. I hope I'm coming through okay. You sure are, yeah. My usual Zoom uh, setup. Yep. Top yeah, so... Uh, it's always good to position oneself. So um, I'm a neurologist as well at the Royal Melbourne and um, epileptologist. So epilepsy is my main subspecialty. Uh, but I have a my PhD, in, which I started during my medical degree, is in biophysics. And so <clears throat> I've got a pretty broad sort of, you know, brief of stuff. <laughs> well, welcome welcome to Triple R, and that's excellent, because then I don't have to do the intro to you in a minute, because you've done it. Um, we'll, we'll, head, we'll head on in the morning to our first break, but my brief little news story is on, um, I guess it's an intervention that COVID has, uh, uh, you, you know, this upset that COVID has caused. In Monash University, they put out a press, uh, a media release about an initiative which is under the Victorian Government Public Health Emergency Orders, um, in which fourth-year pharmacy students and interns can now complete training to administer the COVID-19 vaccine. This is, a, of course, in response to the pandemic and um, the rapid increase that we're all hearing about in influenza cases. And it's the first time in the history here in Victoria that pharmacy students are being trained to administer vaccines um, as a way to try and boost the, the, the state's immunity. So these um, students have now completed their training uh, to administer COVID-19 and influenza vaccines to eligible patients. So it's a certain patient group in community pharmacy uh, sites. And um, this is under the supervision of trained immunisers. And 
the I, I guess because the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, ATAGI, I think they call it, has recently approved a fourth dose of the vaccine for some for some people, and because influence is back in full force, we really have to keep on top of this and um, keep on top of our um, vaccinations to keep people safe and also to keep um, the hospital admissions under control. Now, this was brought in specifically for this winter to see us through winter, but um, the people. The wise people in the know, like there's a um, Stephen Walker, is a Monash lecturer and a pharmacist, and he says that he's hoping that this is actually going to contribute to the evidence to perhaps roll this out beyond our kind of crisis and this current position, well into 20, well beyond this year. So, you know, I just think this is another example of where we're just revisiting the way that we're providing healthcare and perhaps improving things in the longer term. Um, and looking at revisiting who can do what within our health services in a safe and effective way. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr Chris French, welcome to Triple R. Well, thanks so much for having me. Your experience. <laughs> well, that's excellent. Um, we so Chris has already done his little intro. He is a um, medical doctor. He's a neurologist, but he's also a research fellow at the Royal Melbourne and elsewhere. Now, just before we so Chris, before we launch, and tell us a little bit about you know you're 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 you are a doctor. Do you treat people as well? And what does a day look like for you? Is it kind of a mix of people and microscopes, or people and mice, or how does it work? Yeah, really good question. I sometimes stand back and go, yeah, what is going on? <laughs> so, um, theoretically, you have this kind of effective EFTs, you know, effective full-time stuff, and so I'm probably theoretically 0.3, 0.4 research. So what I do on a normal day, say on Tuesday, I do a full day of consulting, general neurology, just anything comes through the front door, I sort of, you know, have a go. And then uh, on Thursday afternoons, I do uh, epilepsy at the Royal Melbourne. And then I run a meeting from about 4 to 6 p.m. where we look at all the patients in the inpatient unit. And the rest of the week, like yesterday, I got called into the Royal Melbourne private for someone who'd gone into status epilepticus. So I do a fair bit of clinical stuff. And then uh, the rest of the time, I've got a lab at the Melbourne Brain Centre on the first floor. So I'm really lucky be in this excellent facility. I've got a whole pile of um, electrophysiology rigs that do things like patch clamping and single cell recording and drug stuff. And then upstairs on the sixth floor, we've got this, we do these experiments uh, on um, sort of behavioural stuff and the, the kind of dementia sort of things that I've been, we're probably going to talk about a bit later. So that's what it looks like. And then I do, actually, I run the honours program for the Faculty of Medicine as well, so you know, keeps me off the street. Yes, certainly, it sounds like it. <laughs> that's a, that's a lot to keep you busy. Uh, one thing, I have a lot of excellent students, and that's actually they're the ones who do most of the work. So I really want to say that. Yeah. Oh well, I'm sure. That, oh, hopefully, they're all listening. So, um, congratulations, all you students. And I mean, Dr. Moto will know he's just finished his PhD, and um, it takes over your life, doesn't it, Dr. Moto? Yes, I um, managed to survive, and um, and then of course it's like any qualification that you get, you um, you know realize it's after you finish your PhD that's when the rubber actually hits the road. Yeah. Training wheels are off. Yeah, 
Exactly. That's Speaking right. of train wheels, by the way, train wheels is not with us today because she's had her baby, little Yay. Felix. So that's why wow. she is missing in action today. But I did speak to her on the way in, and she is all good. So, Chris, you, um, you, know, you, you recently published a study, and it was called A Window on Memory Loss in Alzheimer's. And um, have, developing dementia and Alzheimer's is a fear that I think all of us fear. We all fear that. And in 2020, I read yesterday, it was the leading cause of death in women and the second leading cause of death in men. So it is a, it's a valid fear that we have. But the first thing I want to ask you is dementia and Alzheimer's, we often use those terms interchangeably, um, but they're not actually the same. Do you mind just explaining to us a bit about what the difference is? Yeah, so uh, dementia is a, I would, as I said, just to position myself, I'm not a dementia specialist per se, but we deal with it all the time, obviously, and I, I deal with it clinically as well. So the, the, it's more a functional, I think I, I prefer, and I think this is the preferred definition, it's a functional definition, and that is that if you have cognitive impairment that affects your ability to operate, that is dementia. And, and so a lot, there are quite a few people around who aren't quite as good as they used to be, but there's no impairment of their function, in which case we, that we wouldn't call it dementia. But then the, the most common cause, though, is Alzheimer's. And um, having said that, there are some subtypes that are really important, and this is one area that we are working directly on, and that's called Lewy body dementia. So that's where uh, a different type of protein called alpha-synuclein, as opposed to the amyloid uh, proteins in Alzheimer's, is expressed. And about 20% of patients have Lewy body, and that is manifested in quite different ways it's really important to differentiate those. So that's the basic answer. Um, there's anything that in, any uh, thing that causes your cognition to deteriorate to an extent that it affects your function is what we call dementia. But there are these subtypes. Yeah, sure. So Lewy body and uh, Alzheimer's are two subtype examples of dementia. And mm. I presume that uh, in the early days they might manifest in something of a similar way. They do, but I can't emphasise enough. Um, this is something that's been only, I think, really getting out even to the neurology community that there's different... Lewy body and Alzheimer's are quite different in their manifestations. Um, so with Lewy body, for example, you'll find that people have visual hallucinations, that their uh, memory is not so badly impaired, that short-term memory. <clears throat> and second, or in addition to that, they often have a greater burden of um, psychiatric depression and so forth and paranoia. And um, another really critical thing is that with Alzheimer's patients, you can sometimes use low doses of antipsychotic drugs effectively. In Lewy body, it will generally make them worse. And that's a major pitfall for people in diagnostics that if you don't understand that. The other thing I would say is, the management of these patients that I've seen people, they get the label Alzheimer's and they're just sort of, oh, we'll put them away into a, some sort of locked ward. The Lewy body where a lot of, they're, they're quite fluctuant in their, in the degree of cognitive impairment and it really needs to be carefully managed. You can do really bad things to people if you put them into these boxes and I can't emphasise that enough. That's why it's so important to diagnose it and if possible treat it. Mm, and I mean that's such a that's a, such a good lesson, especially because it's so hard to get to see a neurologist such as yourself and others, um, and especially at the moment, Dr. Moto. 
Yeah, um, and um, it's also very refreshing for me to hear from a neurologist that sort of a, um, a differentiation between the different types of dementias. Um, and I was also going to add, of course, um, for our listeners, um, you know, so-called mixed dementia or um, dementia where you have several different etiologies or different causes is actually a very, very common. It's the second most common form of dementia, you know, after Alzheimer's. So mixed dementia is when you have... Um, um, as uh, Dr. French said, um, cognitive decline that impairs with your function, but the causes are multifactorial. It might be wear and tear and um, vascular changes, having had um, strokes or having been a chronic smoker. It might have been um, a brain injury that um, one sustained um, earlier on in life. And of course, you know, you um, are um, demac- uh, uh, directly um, uh, injuring your, your brain cells and they will, might not function um, as well as they could. So that can cause um, functional deficits, memory problems, um, psychotic symptoms, etc. So, um, you know, often the, the cause, the, the subtype of dementia is not that elegantly defined because um, people experience these symptoms into the sixth or seventh decade of their lives and they've had long and fulfilling lives living up to that stage. Um, but at the same time, there's, you know, some wear and tear that can happen in those six to seven mm. decades. Mm. And I wanted to, um, the role of alcohol in our um, society yes. on this as well. And I think it's, I wonder whether it's something we're becoming a bit more aware of now. Can I ask really quickly, what is the neurological similarity that could generate psychosis in this kind of, in this, in, in, in this brain function that would associate with you know a complex mental health issue as opposed to dementia alzheimer's how does psychosis occur in this in this relevance um the dr Moto, i'm not quite sure of your areas of expertise but if you want to sure i'll give it a crack absolutely it's a fantastic um question dr patient um, at the cellular level, we're not entirely sure what happens um, to cause psychotic symptoms. There are some um, hypotheses, some theories related to um, dopamine concentrations and whether it's because of um, some of these um, brain insults that have occurred over time, um, such as you know, um, having had an ischemic stroke having um, um, had um, alcohol-related subtle but long-term chronic brain damage that interferes with um, the intrasynaptic concentrations of some of these chemicals, such as dopamine, that might precipitate um, people to develop psychotic symptoms, or whether it's a problem with um, signaling deficits. Um, Because we also know that um, damage to the brain can... Um, interrupt um, signaling deficits and that can also precipitate psychotic symptoms as well. So we're not quite sure, like right down at that kind of cellular level, what's actually going on. Um, But suffice to say, um, forms of brain insult, brain injury um, can um, predispose people to experience these symptoms. Sorry, Chris, please keep going. (laughs) I might might just jump in there because... uh, just as a cellular electrophysiologist, etc., and as a clinician, I just would add the, the links between these phenomena, these phenomena, the phenomenology of psychosis, etc., is extremely uncertain. And I think that's, although the dopamine hypothesis is extremely plausible, and there's probably a lot to it, 
we really don't know. I just can't emphasise it enough. And we're at a state, but one the good news is we're at a stage now where we can start interrogating circuits to give real plausible causality in these areas. So that's the exciting news in my in my opinion. And that it, is, it is exciting that we've got, um, you know, people like yourselves researching this and, we're su- you know, we're in such early days of this research, aren't we, in all of these areas. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Chris is going to tell us this morning about a um, study he's doing into Alzheimer's. And Chris, you say that this um, Alzheimer's may possibly be a signalling problem. Can you tell us a bit about what that actually means and why it's actually important? Yeah, so the different ways of looking at Alzheimer's, as I said, the phenomenology in a, in a patient and then how we can replicate that in, a, in an animal model. So the, the thing that a lot of people think about, you know, medical people and, even, you know, People well informed on the area of issue. You think of the the amyloid tangle, you know, amyloid deposition and the fibrillary tangles. In other words, the cellular pathophysiology that happens in Alzheimer's. When you look at someone's brain, it's messed up. There's some stuff there that's almost certainly causing problems. But my interest is more at the functional level. How do the, how is the circuit working? How is the memory encoding going? How is the decoding going? And one of the most striking phenomena clinically is that if you look at people's brains, you know, people who are a bit older, there are people who have a lot of uh, Alzheimer pathology in their brain. They've got the amyloid, they've got the fibrillary depositions, they've got cell death, but there's nothing wrong with them. And that's really peculiar. Okay. On the other hand, you must have that to get the mm-hmm. So that's telling me that there is something there that's actually wrong at the circuit function level. I use the analogy with cardiac arrhythmias. Your heart can be damaged a bit and your rhythm goes out out of sync and you lose efficiency, you get out of breath, stuff like that. But if you can resynchronize either with a pacemaker or with a drug, the function improves a lot. So my sense is that in some of these uh, cognitive disorders of dementias, part of the problem is just the circuit isn't properly tuned and that's what we've been looking at with our, with our uh, experiments so uh, just to move on to that we've got this technique I think we're the first in Australia to do it where we can put uh, fluorescent markers into neurons and and when they discharge when they fire we can see them in real time as the anim- as the animal goes around does stuff you know eats um, goes into a maze memorizes its way down a, a path we can actually see the cells firing and encoding that information. So it's a pretty neat technique. We can record from hundreds of neurons for months at a time, same neurons. So it's an unbelievable technique. Um, so it, then we thought, yeah, sorry. No, and how, how, do you, how do you do that? So you, you've kind of got some mice with dementia, do you? Is that how that no, works? No, we, we don't. We, the start off, I, I learned this lesson from someone at Woods Hole years ago. Start with normal. Yes. Yeah. So what we do... We put these um, fluorescent markers in. We use a viral vector, so mm-hmm. that encodes the protein that glows when, when the cell fires. And that we start, we give them that beforehand, and that just stays in their brain forever. And then we put these little cameras in their brain. Uh, just uh, a tiny 1.8 millimeter lens, essentially. Wow. wow. 
So they're going around with this tiny little camera in their brain and it's actually seeing the uh, neurons going on. It's like this yes. little, like a little glowworm in the brain exactly. going around type of thing. Okay. Exactly. And to be to be accurate, the, the lens is 1.8 millimetres yep. in diameter. We actually put it out onto the surface of the skull. Most of the time they're just wandering around with nothing. You know, this is 1.8 millimetre little attachment. When we want to do an experiment, we actually put about a, a one a two centimetre high or 1.5 centimetre high little uh, microscope. Just put it on the top and they just wander around with that. That's you know, extraordinary. And how far that's, away from getting that into people? Say again? How far away are we from getting these little cameras into people? <laughs> so um, we're working on it, actually. Um, it's going to be, I reckon, three to five years. Mm -hmm. The Obviously, there's all sorts of ethical stuff with this. We wouldn't do it just to look at people with Alzheimer's disease in general. But with brain-computer interfaces, this is could be the real deal. Um, so we're working on an optical brain-computer interface as a completely separate project, but I'll, I won't go into that at the moment. No, we'll have to have you back. But that sounds quite... Um, it, I mean, it's, it's kind of cutting-edge research, isn't it? We've got a long way to go, obviously, in finding either prevention, treatment or a cure for dementia and for Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, this is one really important contribution is looking at is it a functional signalling type of uh, issue rather than, exactly. you know, other causes. Um, but in the meantime, um, uh, what's your sense on what we can be doing right now to um, do everything we can to prevent getting dementia? And, how, no, exactly. and, why, and why does it help? Yeah, Yeah. No, so that, that's such an important question because mm -hmm. people like myself, as neurologists, we have all the, this fancy stuff we can do these days. We, and then as neuroscientists, we can do these incredible studies, which are so important long term. But as, as you say, reality really is much simpler. Exercise, mm. get out, do some exercise. And studies have been showing in just about every single thing. I, jo I joke with my patients and, and, some, and students sometimes that the, the unfortunate late 20th century, that all the results, all the scientific major breakthroughs show that everything your mother told you was true. So don't eat too much sugar, too much salt. But exercise, it reduces the incidence of Alzheimer's, I believe, just going through the studies by 30 to 40%, which is extraordinary. So, so, so keep exercising. Simple things like blood pressure, etc. Yeah, I, I, thanks so much for that, Dr. French. Um, I remember um, years ago I was um, sitting in a lecture um, with um, the great um, Professor David Ames, who's a... Um, uh, professor of age psychiatry, um, still is, um, but um, at uh, the University of Melbourne. And, um, you know, we were talking about this exact same topic. And, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was what the evidence base looked like, that um, there have been, you know, a handful of studies looking at Sudoku and mind games. And um, I think you can get Nintendos to train your, you know, problem solving. There's fish oil, there is... <laughs> Um, all sorts of supplements and vitamins and um, diets. But I, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, most convincingly, most robustly, um, the main um, um, lifestyle modification one can use is exercise. Everything else is, is a bit equivocal. Absolutely, yeah. I think the, the mind game stuff is showing some positive results in some, some domains, but exercise is it and then simple other common sense things like blood pressure really important dr chris french thank you so much for joining us on triple i
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Um, we have got in the and with us here today, Jackie. So welcome, Jackie. Thanks, Saba Sue. Um, Bring it to be here. So, so, so Jackie Coyle is an author, and she is also many, many, many other things in an amazing career. And she's also a. Um, a, a tr- I understand you've had a very close relationship with Triple R for some thirty-five years. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's one of the one of the bastions of Melbourne life, I think. <laughs> so, and, I, and you are part of that. So, welcome along. And we really, um, I'm so sorry, I've kind of got my back to you. It feels a bit weird. But um, Jackie, you have been writing a book um, called "In the End: A Practical Guide to Dying." Can you tell us a bit about what got you into writing this book, and a bit about Fernley, who's commissioned you to do this? Sure thing. Yeah, um, well, it was quite an interesting process for, for a writing project. It was, um, they invited me to, to tender some ideas for how we could put this book together. They already had, like, quite a little, um, quite a small publication to start with, you know, about what happens when you die, but they wanted something that's a bit more professional, a bit more approachable for people and a bit more comprehensive so um and I'd been sort of this was perfect timing for me I'd been thinking about this for about eight years since my younger sister died of cancer and and my parents followed not long after and you know just trying to to think about this question see how other people in the world dealt with it etc so uh, I came up with this idea like I'd Fernley is a day palliative care place out in the far east, as we call it, Emerald and um, Pakenham, and Beautiful they also part of Victoria. Mm. That's right, and um, they also have in-home care services, and they look after carers as well. And I love the idea of palliative care in that it looks after the whole person. It's not just that person's conditions; it's thinking about their family, their work, their their life in general, and um, so that was the way I thought of structuring the book. Like, and thinking of the person in terms of the five parts of the self, it's the body, it's the mind, it's the soul, but also the people around you and your possessions, and that's, that's what makes up your life. But um, quite often what happens is that um, it's all about possessions, which are seemingly the least important of all these. It's such a, so, and your book is structured beautifully in that respect. I think it's very readable and it's very um, ac- accessible to people and possessions are part of what creates I guess us and kind of represents us, doesn't it? Yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that stri- strikes me is that Hollywood has a lot to answer for in um, what kind of creates our ideas of what death looks like and, um, you know, deaths on screen there um they can be violent and bloody and unpleasant kind of experiences. And that's um, uh, there's few kind of realistic portrayals of what a natural natural what a natural cause death looks like. And I think your book does a really great job of describing it and taking out some of that fear. So um, you know, I commend you on that. Why do you think that we're so kind of averse to talking about death and dying? Well it it has become a lot more distant. Like in the old days, if someone died, they'd stay in the house. Usually the women of the household would dress the body and and care for the body until 
until it was time to be buried. And now it's it's become a lot more distant. You know, we let people take over, and it's it's come to professionals. But uh, it's there's actually a lot that we can do. There was a program recently about people who are taking funerals into their own hands, and um, and it's there are a lot more choices that we can make about it. But um, yes, popular culture and, and throughout time, throughout humankind, um, it's been death has been portrayed as the enemy. You know, if you can defeat death, you're the hero. And um, absolutely battling, battling an illness. That's and... right. That's right. Yeah, uh, fighting the fight. And um, whereas it's like birth, like dying is is a stage of life. And if we can think of it like that and plan it like we plan most of the other stages of our life and think about, well, how would I like to die? What do I want to leave? And, um, and where do I want to die as well? Dr. Patient. With, with, one of my major fears about death is, will it hurt? You know, we, we have these fears that we don't want to talk about in the eventuality that it may come true, you know, how, how, how we die is, is terrifying to some. I mean, why, apart from me saying that I think it'll hurt, is there, is there a general consensus of why we fear dying of overcoming the fears to, you know, to cognitively get past that? We've been, we've seen so much death throughout history that has been, again, what sub-suicide attributed to violence and, and overly dramatic reasoning, whereas, you know, a natural, simple death of just, being here and then going away is is rarely it's sort of talked about. That's I mean, right. What, what have yeah. you found? Yeah, it's much less dramatic than that actually. Yeah. But um, I've I've been with several people as in those final stages, and I've found it's it's quite a beautiful stage. Can I read you a little bit? Um, this is from oh, please. a book by Catherine Mannix with the end in mind, and one doctor was talking to a patient who had terminal bowel cancer. The patient was 80 years old and terrified of dying. And the doctor said, people spend more time asleep and less time awake. Sometimes they appear to be asleep, but they're actually unconscious. It seems we don't notice when we're unconscious. And at the very end of life, a person is unconscious all the time. And then he continued, um, their breathing starts to change and then it very gently slows down and then it stops. There's no sudden rush of pain, no feeling of fading away. No panic, just very, very peaceful. And, um, and figures show that this, this is how it actually does happen most of the time. It's very rare that, that it is a violent, painful sort of event. It seems, it seems such an overly dramatic event as well when, when people attribute, attribute it as well, that the, that the singular person just finally passing on. Mm. It, um, it's... <laughs> It's weird. It's it's very weird. Mm. Yes, and it it is well because it's it's the end. Like it's the end of everything. It's the end of all our experiences, our relationships, and uh, and it, this also depends on our beliefs as well. Like religion has got a lot to answer for in terms of being like a gatekeeper on dying yep. and death and uh, and creating these beliefs. But now, and it was really interesting in the in the last census, fewer and fewer people are um, saying that they're Christian themselves. 
So, so it leaves this sort of a void. Well, you know, it's quite an existential void, and it leaves. You find people... that... Sorry. Sorry, keep going. No, keep going. Well, people who've who've had a strong faith all their life also can can get to that stage where they have been given a a, a deadline, basically, um, and <laughs> and. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they start questioning. They just start wondering mm. whether or not they've had these religious beliefs. It's interesting because in your book you, 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 you describe Australia as one of the most religiously diverse countries in the world. And I was struck by that. I thought that was interesting. Um, it was by uh, Dr Gary Boomer, who's uh, from Monash University and also an Anglican priest, as I understand it. And it did make me think about the role that religion plays, and I certainly notice it here in um, in Victoria, because modern palliative care organisations are often based on uh, on religious organisations. So, do you see the religion playing a role in either our conversations um, or preparing for death or dying in Australia? Oh, I think definitely. It's and it's quite interesting because, I've, in terms of religion, quite often we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater because. Um, there, are, there are some great things about it, like, for example, like bad things can happen to good people. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's so true. Do you think the, the attribution of... The, the, there is a reason in religion to give a person purpose of good and bad and that kind of thing. Do you think that with the decrease of, um, of religious overtones associated with death, does that change a person's regret in their life? Um, yes, it, well, it could do because I think it creates this kind of a questioning of everything, really. More objective, less sort of, less sort of, did I do enough? Did I do this? Mm. Or more, is it, is it more objective or more subjective to the person? That's a really interesting one because it's, it is a very subjective thing i mean death is is that kind of essential it really brings everything down to to basics doesn't it like and the book talks about regrets it talks about the regrets that people have um in life and the things they wish they'd done more of which as we might not be surprised it's less less time working and more time with friends and family that's right (laughs) and more time like speaking up for your own beliefs more often and staying in touch with people nothing to do with um with having a beautiful house and a beautiful car. That's so true. So in your work with researching and preparing for this book about um, Practical Guide to Dying, what have you actually learned about life and about living? Um, yeah, where do I start about that? <laughs> but uh, for me it's been amazing because it's it's given me this gratitude and appreciation for life and the beauty of life, like the beauty of the, the earth and the world around us, like a a bit of blue sky poking through the grey clouds. <laughs> it can bring an inordinate amount of pleasure. Mm. And it's interesting because in your book you, you there, there is a quote and it says that people who die well usually live well. So it does talk about, you know, end of life being a continuum of, of, of life. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I certainly have seen that in my work with uh, end of life is that people often die the way that they live. And whether that's um, closely connected to family, whether it's... Um, uh, alone or whether it's chaotic or whether it's planned, there's definitely, it, it, it's just part of the continuum. It's not the separate thing that we think that it is that's out there. 
And that's really interesting about, like, quite often families have guilt about, well, they weren't there when, when that person died, but quite often that person has actually chosen, they've said goodbye to everyone and then they've actually chosen whether they want to die with people or whether they want to just be alone and drift off mm. quietly. And so I've got a couple of last kind of questions and it's really about about the people who, the, the, the friends and family of people, what, what is your kind of guidance and advice for how we can be when we are with someone who faces a life-limiting illness? Uh, my sense is that people can be very worried about what they should say or what they shouldn't say and that people may feel very isolated and alone when they are facing this. Have you got some kind of advice for that? Yeah, that, and that can be when they most need people around them and it's, it's asking them questions about what they want. Do they want to... And just being quiet so that they can talk about it if they want to. But there's a, a fantastic theory called um, the ring. Mm. The ring theory where, um, like, you might see someone who's looking absolutely terrible and, and you feel quite distressed for your friend... But um, consider that that you're on the outer part of the... The person in the middle of the ring is the actual person and next to them is, like, their partner, their, their spouse or whatever, their family. And see where you are in the circle and comfort inwards and complain outwards. And that's a, that's a really good starting point. Mm, no, I like that. So the person who's unwell, who, who's facing the life, they're right in the centre. So if you're closest to them, don't complain into that person, but complain out to someone that's who's right. less close to them. Mm-hmm. And then so you work out in that ring. And if you're in the real outer circle, still make sure that you kind of find your comfort and support from someone who's less close to that person than you are. That's right, yeah. And also, I think a lot of people think that they have to spend a lot of time <coughs> with someone, mm. but um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a long time. And just sort of, if it's a short time, just say when you'll be back. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess at the moment we're talking about people who uh, uh, face a, a predicted uh, uh, death at the end of a, a, an illness of some sort. But one in five deaths are sudden. That's right. So what should we, what should or could we do um, to prepare for that as just general healthy, well population? It's uh, yeah, that's a it's re- a really good statistic. And what we can do is just put put things in place, like, for example, even just our, our social media and digital world. Um, let someone know our passwords, have a will, have a um, have an executor, and um, just think about those various things. Yeah, sure. And um, things like organ donation? Organ donation, absolutely, yeah. And what about relationships? Like it says in there, uh, registering your relationships, if you're not in a married relationship, why is that important? Yeah, this was fantastic for me to find out. Well, two ways, like um, if you've got a blended family situation, um, if you haven't actually got that documentation of relationship, it can take quite a long time to actually get that sorted out, especially if the... If the person at the centre of it hasn't, you know, isn't able to communicate that, so in terms of a, in terms of the will and in terms of being with them when they most need you yeah, in sure. hospital, etc. 
And I mean, I think that um, people, uh, I, I don't have an I, ICU experience, but I think people working in ICU, that is one of the things they experience is that there's a partner, but they're not, suddenly they're no longer the official next of kin. It's, the, the, yes. it's somebody else, like it's the parents, and that partner can find themselves very much on the outside. That can be devastating, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, any, any more questions from our online panel there for um, Jackie, for Jackie? Thousands, but we don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time. Um, we are near the end of our show. Jackie, thank you so much for coming on. Um, as Dr. Patient said, there's a hundred other things we could talk to you about, as there was with Dr. Chris French. But thank you, listeners, for listening to us. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you, Panel Beta, for knocking out that. And um, thanks, everyone, over and out. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.